Chapter 3 of The Pirate's Own Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. The Pirate's Own Book by Charles Elms. Chapter 3 The Remarkable History of the Josemite Pirates of the Persian Gulf. Containing a description of their chief town, Ras el Khaimah and an account of the capture of several European vessels and the barbarous treatment of their crews, with interesting details of the several expeditions sent against them, and their final submission to the troops of the English East India Company. The line of coast from Case Musandam to Bahrain on the Arabian side of the Persian Gulf had been from time immemorial occupied by a tribe of Arabs called Josemis. These, from local position, were all engaged in maritime pursuits. Some traded in their own small vessels to Bussorah, Bushire, Muscat, and even India. Others annually fished in their own boats on the pearl banks of Bahrain. And a still greater number hired themselves out as sailors to navigate the coasting small craft of the Persian Gulf. The Josemis at length perceiving that their local position enabled them to reap a rich harvest by plundering vessels in passing this great highway of nations commenced their piratical career the small coasting vessels of the gulf from their defenseless state were the first object of their pursuit and these soon fell an easy prey until emboldened by success they directed their views to more arduous enterprises and having tasted the sweets of plunder in the increase of their wealth had determined to attempt more promising victories about the year seventeen ninety seven one of the East India Company's vessels of war, the Viper, of ten guns, was lying at anchor in the inner roads of Bushire. Some dows of the Josemis were at the same moment anchored in the harbor, but as their warfare had hitherto been waged only against what are called native vessels, and they had either feared or respected the British flag, no hostile measures were ever pursued against them by the British ships. The commanders of these dows had applied to the Persian agent of the East India Company there for a supply of gunpowder and cannon shot for their crews, and as this man had no suspicions of their intentions, he furnished them with an order to the commanding officer on board for the quantity required. The captain of the Viper was on shore at the time in the agent's house, but the order being produced to the officer on board, the powder and shot were delivered and the dows waited and made sail. Crew of the Viper were at this moment taking their breakfast on deck, and the officers below, when, on a sudden, a cannonading was opened on them by two of the dows, who attempted also to board. The officers, leaping on deck, called the crew to quarters, and cutting their cable, got sail upon the ship, so as to have the advantage of maneuvering. A regular engagement now took place between this small cruiser of four dows, all armed with great guns, and full of men. In the contest, Lieutenant Carruthers, the commanding officer, was once wounded by a ball in his loins, but after girding a handkerchief around his waist, he still kept the deck, till a ball entering his forehead, he fell. Mr. Salter, the midshipman on whom the command devolved, continued the fight with determined bravery, and after a stout resistance, beat them off, chased them some distance out to sea, and subsequently regained the anchorage in safety. Several years elapsed before the wounds of the first defeat were sufficiently healed to induce a second attempt on vessels under the British flag. 
though a constant state of warfare was still kept up against the small craft of the Gulf. In 1804, the East India Company's cruiser Fly was taken by a French privateer off the island of Ken in the Persian Gulf, but before the enemy boarded her, she ran into shoal water near that island and sunk the government dispatches and some treasure with which they were charged in about two and a half fathoms of water, taking marks for the recovery of them, if possible, at some future period. The passengers and crew were taken to Bushire, where they were set at liberty, and having purchased a country dow by subscription, they fitted her out and commenced their voyage down the gulf bound for Bombay. On their passage down, as they thought it would be practical to recover the government packet and treasure sunk off Ken, they repaired to that island, and were successful, after much exertion, in recovering the former, which being in their estimation of the first importance, as the dispatches were from England to Bombay. They sailed with them on their way thither, without loss of time. Near the mouth of the gulf they were captured by a fleet of Josemi boats, after some resistance, in which several were wounded and taken into their chief port at Ras al Here they were detained in hope of ransom, and during their stay were shown to the people of the town as curiosities, no similar beings having been before seen there within the memory of man. The Josemi ladies were so minute in their enquiries, indeed, that they were not satisfied without determining in what respect an uncircumcised infidel differed from a true believer. When these unfortunate Englishmen had remained for several months in the possession of the Arabs, and no hope of their ransom appeared, it was determined to put them to death, and thus rid themselves of unprofitable enemies. An anxiety to preserve life, however, induced the suggestion, on their part, of a plan for the temporary prolongation of it, at least. With this view they communicated to the chief of the pirates the fact of their having sunk a quantity of treasure near the island of Ken, and of their knowing the marks of the spot, by the bearings of objects on shore, with sufficient accuracy to recover it, if furnished with good divers. They offered, therefore, to purchase their own liberty, by a recovery of this money for their captors, and on the fulfillment of their engagement it was solemnly promised to be granted to them. They soon sailed for the spot, accompanied by divers accustomed to that occupation on the pearl banks of Bahrain, and on their anchoring of the precise points of bearing taken, they commenced their labors. The first divers who went down were so successful that all the crew followed in their turns, so that the vessel was at one time almost entirely abandoned at anchor. As the men, too, were all so busily occupied in their golden harvest, the moment appeared favorable for escape, and the still captive Englishmen were already at their stations to overpower the few on board, cut the cable, and make sail. Their motions were either seen or suspected, as the divers repaired on board in haste, and the scheme was thus frustrated. They were now given their liberty as promised by being landed on the island of Ken, where, however, no means offered for their immediate escape. The pirates, having at the same time landed themselves on the island, commenced a general massacre of the inhabitants, in which their released prisoners, fearing they might be included, fled for shelter to clefts and hiding places in the rocks. During their refuge here they lived on such food as chance threw their way, going out under cover of the night to steal a goat and drag it to their haunts. When the pirates had at length completed their work of blood, and either murdered or driven off every former inhabitant of the island, they quitted it themselves, with the treasure which they had thus collected from the sea and shore. The Englishmen now ventured to come out from their hiding places, and to think of devising some means of escape. Their good fortune, in a moment of despair, threw them on a wreck of a boat near the beach, which was still capable of repair. 
In searching about the now deserted town, other materials were found, which were of use to them, and sufficient plank and logs of wood for the construction of a raft. These were both completed in a few days, and the party embarked on them in two divisions to effect a passage to the Persian shore. One of these rafts was lost in an attempt, and all aboard her perished, while the raft, with the remainder of the party, reached land. Having gained the mainland, they now set out on foot towards Bushire, following the line of the coast for the sake of the villages and water. In this way they are said to have suffered incredible hardships and privations of every kind. No one knew the language of the country perfectly, and the roads and places of refreshment still less. They were in general destitute of clothes and money, and constantly subject to plunder and imposition, poor as they were. Their food was therefore often scanty, and always of the worst kind, and they had neither shelter from the burning sun of the day, nor from the chilling dews of night. The Indian sailors, Sipakis, and servants, of whom a few were still remaining when they set out, had all dropped off by turns, and even Europeans had been abandoned on the road in the most affecting way, taking the last adieu of their comrades, who had little else to expect but soon to follow their fate. One instance is mentioned of their having left one who could march no further, at the distance of only a mile from a village, and on returning to the spot on the morrow to bring him in, nothing was found but his mangled bones, as he had been devoured in the night by jackals. The packet, being light, was still, however, carried by turns, and preserved through all obstacles and difficulties, and with it they reached at length the island of Buship, to which they crossed over in a boat from the main. Here they were detained by the sheik, but at length he provided them with a boat for the conveyance of themselves and dispatches to Bushire. From this place they proceeded to Bombay, but of all the company only two survived, a Mr. Jowell, an officer of a merchant ship, and an English sailor named Penmel, together with the bag of letters and dispatches. In the following year, two English brigs, the Shannon, Captain Babcock, and the trimmer, Captain Cummings, were on their voyage from Bombay to Bussara. These were both attacked, near the islands of Polior and Ken, by several boats, and after a slight resistance on the part of the Shannon only, were taken possession of, and a part of the crew of each cruelly put to the sword. Captain Babcock, having been seen by one of the Arabs to discharge a musket during the contest, was taken by them on shore and after a consultation on his fate, it was determined that he should forfeit the arm by which this act of resistance was committed. It was accordingly severed from his body by one stroke of a saber, and no steps were taken either to bind up the wound or to prevent his bleeding to death. The captain himself had yet sufficient presence of mind left, however, to think of his own safety, and there being left near him some clarified butter, he procured this to be heated and while yet warm, thrust the bleeding stump of his arm into it. It had the effect of lessening the effusion of blood, and ultimately of saving a life that would otherwise most probably have been lost. The crew were then all made prisoners, and taken to a port of Arabia, from whence they gradually dispersed and escaped. The vessels themselves were additionally armed, one of them mounting twenty guns manned with Arab crews, and sent from Ras al-Khaimah to cruise in the Gulf, where they committed many piracies. In the year 1808, the force of the Josemes, having gradually increased, and becoming flushed with the pride of victory, 
were ins their insulting attacks on the British flag were more numerous and more desperate than ever. The first of these was on the ship Minerva of Bombay on her voyage to Bussorah. The attack was commenced by several boats, for they never cruise singly, and a spirited resistance in a running fight was kept up at intervals for several days in succession. A favorable moment offered, however, for boarding. The ship was overpowered by numbers and carried amidst a general massacre. The captain was said to have been cut up into separate pieces and thrown overboard by fragments. The second mate and carpenter alone were spared, probably to make use of their services. And an Armenian lady, the wife of Lieutenant Taylor, then at Bushire, was reserved perhaps for still greater sufferings, but was subsequently ransomed for a large sum. A few weeks after this, the Sylph, one of the East India Company's cruisers of sixty tons and mounting eight guns, was accompanying the mission under Sir Hartford Jones from Bombay to Persia, when being separated from the rest of the squadron, she was attacked in the Gulf by a fleet of dows. These bore down with all the menacing attitude of hostility, but as the commander, Lieutenant Graham, had received orders from the Bombay government not to open his fire on any of these vessels until he had been first fired on himself, the ship was hardly prepared for battle, and the colors were not even hoisted to apprise them to what nation she belonged. The dows approached, threw their long overhanging prows across the sylph's beam, and pouring in a shower of stones on her deck, beat down and wounded almost everyone who stood on it. They then boarded and made the ship an easy prize, before more than a single shot had been fired, and in their usual way put everyone whom they found alive to the sward. Lieutenant Graham fell, covered with wounds, down the fore hatchway of his own vessel, where he was dragged by some of the crew into a storeroom in which they had secreted themselves, and barricaded the door with a crowbar from within. The cruiser was thus completely in the possession of the enemy, who made sail on her, and were bearing her off in triumph to their own port, in company with their boats. Soon after, however, the commodore of the squadron, in the narried frigate, hove in sight, and perceiving this vessel in company with the dows, judged her to be a prize to the pirates. She accordingly gave them all chase, and coming up with a brig, the Arabs took to their boats and abandoned her. The chase was continued after the dows, but without success. These repeated aggressions at length opened the eyes of the East India government, and an expedition was accordingly assembled at Bombay. The naval force consisted of La Chiffon, frigate, Captain Wainwright as Commodore, the Caroline of 38 guns, and eight of the East India Company's cruisers, namely the Mornington, Ternate, Aurora, Prince of Wales, Ariel, Nautilus, Vestal, and Fury, with four large transports and the Stromboli bomb catch. The fleet sailed from Bombay in September, and after a long passage they reached Muscat, where they remained for many days to refresh and arrange their future plans. They sailed and soon reached Ras el the chief port of the pirates within the Gulf. Here the squadron anchored abreast of the town, and the troops were landed under cover of the ships and boats. The inhabitants of the town assembled in crowds to repel the invaders, but the firm line, the regular volleys, and the steady charge of the troops at the point of the bayonet overcame every obstacle, and multiplied the heaps of the slain. A general conflagration was then ordered, and a general plunder to the troops was permitted. 
The town was set on fire in all parts, and about sixty sails of boats and dows, with the Minerva, a ship which they had taken, then lying in the roads, were all burnt and destroyed. The complete conquest of the place was thus effected, with very trifling loss on the part of the besiegers, and some plunder collected, though it was thought that most of the treasure and valuables had been removed into the interior. This career of victory was suddenly damped by the report of the approach of a large body of troops from the interior, and although none of these were seen, this ideal reinforcement induced the besiegers to withdraw. The embarkation took place at daylight in the morning, and while the fleet remained at anchor during the whole of the day, parties were still seen assembling on the shore, displaying their colors, brandishing their spears, and firing muskets from all points, so that the conquest was scarcely as complete as could be wished, since no formal act of submission had yet been shown. The expedition now sailed to Linga, a small port of the Josemes, and burnt it to the ground. The force had now become separated, the greater portion of the troops being sent to Muscat for supplies, or being deemed unnecessary, and some of the vessels were sent on separate services of blockading passages and etc. The remaining portion of the blockading squadron, consisting of La Chiffon frigate, and four of the cruisers, the Mornington, Ternate, Nautilus, and Fury, and two transports, with five hundred troops from Linga, then proceeded to Luft, another port of the Josemes. As the channel here was narrow and difficult of approach, the ships were warped into their stations of anchorage, and a summons sent on shore, as the people had not here abandoned their town, but were found at their posts of defense, in a large and strong castle with many batteries, redoubts, and etc., the summon being treated with disdain, the troops were landed with Colonel Smith at their head, and while forming on the beach, a slight skirmish took place with such of the inhabitants of the town as fled for shelter to the castle. The troops then advanced towards the fortress, which is described to have had walls fourteen feet thick, pierced with loopholes, and only one entrance through a small gate, well cased with iron bars and bolts, in the strongest manner. With a howitzer taken for the occasion, it was intended to have blown this gate open, and to have taken the place by storm, but on reaching it while the ranks opened, and the men sought to surround the castle to seek for some other entrance, at the same time, they were picked off so rapidly and unexpectedly from the loopholes above, that a general flight took place, the howitzer was abandoned, even before it had been fired, and both the officers and the troops sought shelter by lying down behind the ridges of sand in little hillocks immediately underneath the castle walls an irish officer jumping up from his hiding place and calling on some of his comrades to follow him in an attempt to rescue the howitzer was killed in the enterprise such others as even raised their heads to look around them were picked off by the musketry from above and the whole of the troops lay therefore hidden in this way until the darkness of night favored their escape to the beach where they embarked after sunset the enemy having made no sally on them from the fort. A second summons was sent to the chief in the castle, threatening to bombard the town from a nearer anchorage if he did not submit, and no quarter afterwards shown. With the dawn of morning all eyes were directed to the fortress, when, to the surprise of the whole squadron, a man was seen waving the British Union flag on the summit of its walls. It was Lieutenant Hall who commanded the Fury, which was one of the vessels nearest the shore. During the night he had gone on shore alone, taking a Union Jack in his hand, and advanced singly to the castle gate. The fortress had already been abandoned by the greater number of inhabitants, but some few still remained there. 
these fled at the approach of an individual supposing him to be the herald of those who were to follow be this as it may the castle was entirely abandoned and the british flag waved on its walls by this daring officer to the surprise and admiration of all the fleet the town and fortifications were then taken possession of after sweeping round the bottom of the gulf the expedition returned to muscat on the sailing of the fleet from hence the forces were augmented by a body of troops belonging to the imam of muscat destined to assist in the recovery of a place called shinaz on the coast taken by the Josemes. on their arrival at this place a summons was sent commanding the fort to surrender which being refused a bombardment was opened from the ships and boats but without producing much effect on the following morning the whole of the troops were landed and a regular encampment formed on the shore with sand batteries and other necessary works for a siege after several days bombardment in which about four thousand shots and shells were discharged against the fortress to which the people had fled for refuge after burning down the town a breach was reported to be practicable and the castle was accordingly stormed the resistance still made was desperate the arabs fighting as long as they could wield the sword and even thrusting their spears up through the fragments of towers in whose ruins they remained irrevocably buried the loss in killed and wounded was upwards of a thousand men notwithstanding that the object of this expedition might be said to be incomplete inasmuch as nothing less than a total extirpation of their race could secure the tranquillity of these seas yet the effect produced by this expedition was such as to make them reverence or dread the british flag for several years afterwards at length in eighteen fifteen their boats began to infest the entrance to the red sea and in eighteen sixteen their numbers had so increased on that coast that a squadron of them commanded by a chief called amir ibrahim captured within sight of mocha four vessels bound from surat to that port richly laden and navigating under the british flag and the crews were massacred a squadron consisting of his majesty's ship challenger captain bridges and the east india company's cruisers mercury ariel and vessel were dispatched to the chief port of the Josemes, rachel kaima mr buckingham the great oriental traveller accompanied the expedition from bushire upon their arrival at rachel kaima a demand was made for the restoration of the four surat vessels and their cargoes or in lieu thereof twelve lakhs of rupees also that the command of the piratical squadron amir ibrahim should be delivered up for punishment the demand was made by letter an answer being received captain bridges determined to go on shore and have an interview with the pirate chieftain mr buckingham says he requested me to accompany him on shore as an interpreter i readily assented we quitted the ship together around nine o'clock and pulled straight to the shore sounding all the way as we went and gradually shoaling our waters from six to two fathoms within a quarter of a mile of the beach where four large dows lay at anchor ranged in a line with their heads seaward each of them mounting several pieces of cannon and being full of men on landing on the beach we found its whole length guarded by a line of armed men some bearing muskets but the greater part armed with swords shields and spears most of them were negroes whom the Josemes spare in their wars looking on them rather as property and merchandise than in the light of enemies we were permitted to pass this line and upon our communicating our wish to see the chief we were conducted to the gate of the principal building 
nearly in the center of town, and were met by the pirate chieftain attended by fifty armed men. I offered him the Mahometan salutation of peace, which he returned without hesitation. The chief, Hassan ben Rama, whom we had seen, was a small man, apparently about forty years of age, with an expression of cunning in his looks, and something particularly sarcastic in his smile. He was dressed in the usual Arab garments, with a cashmere shawl, turban, and a scarlet benish, of the Persian form, to distinguish him from his followers. They were habited in the plainest garments. One of his eyes had been wounded, but his other features were good, his teeth beautifully white and regular, and his complexion very dark. The town of Rashal Khaimah stands on a narrow tongue of sandy land, pointing to the northeastward, presenting its northwest edge to the open sea, and its southeast one to a creek, which runs up within it to the southwestward, and affords a safe harbor for boats. There appeared to be no continued wall of defense around it, though round towers and portions of walls were seen in several parts, probably once connected in a line, but not yet repaired since their destruction. The strongest points of defense appear to be in the fortress at the northeast angle, and a double round tower near the center of the town, in each of which guns are mounted, but all the other towers appear to afford only shelter for musketeers. The rest of the town is composed of ordinary buildings of unhewn stone, and huts of rushes and long grasses, with narrow avenues winding between them. The present number of inhabitants may be computed at 10,000 at least. There are thought to have been, at present, in 1816, 60 large boats out from their own port, manned with crews from 80 to 300 men each, and 40 other boats that belong to other ports. Their force concentrated would probably amount to at least 100 boats and 8,000 fighting men. After several fruitless negotiations, the signal was now made to weigh and stand closer in towards the town. It was then followed by the signal to engage the enemy. The squadron bore down nearly in line under easy sail and with the wind right aft, or on shore. The Mercury being on the starboard bow, the Challenger next in order, in the center the Vestal following in the same line as the Ariel completing the division. A large fleet of small boats were seen standing in from Cape Musendom at the same time but these escaped by keeping closer along shore, and at length passing over the bar and getting into the backwater behind the town. The squadron continued to stand on in a direct line toward the four anchored dows, gradually shoaling from the depth of our anchorage to two and a half fathoms, where stream anchors were dropped underfoot, with springs on the cables, so that each vessel lay with her broadsides to the shore. A fire was now opened by the whole squadron, directed at the four dows, these boats were full of men, brandishing their weapons in the air, their whole number exceeding probably six hundred. Some of the shot from the few long guns of the squadron reached the shore, and were buried in the sand. Others fell across the bows, and near the hulls of the dows, to which they were directed. But the cannonades all fell short, as we were then fully a mile from the beach. The Arab colors were displayed on all the forts. Crowds of armed men were assembled on the beach, bearing large banners on poles, and dancing around them with their arms, as if rallying around a sacred standard, so that no sign of submission or conquest was witnessed throughout. The Ariel continued to discharge about fifty shot after all the others had desisted, but with as little avail as before, and thus ended this wordy negotiation and the bloodless battle to which it eventually led. 
1818, these pirates grew so daring that they made an eruption into the Indian Ocean and plundered vessels and towns on the islands and coasts. A fleet was sent against them and intercepted them off Ashlola Island, proceeding to the westward in three divisions and drove them back into the Gulf. The Eden and Psyche fell in with two trankies, and these were so closely pursued that they were obliged to drop a small captured boat they had in tow. The Thetes was one day kept in close chase by seventeen vessels, but they were enabled to get away owing to their superior sailing. The cruisers met with the Josemes seventeen times and were constantly employed in hunting them from place to place. At length, in 1819, they became such a scourge to the commerce that a formidable expedition under the command of Major General Sir W. Grant Keir sailed against them. It arrived before the chief town in December and commenced operations. In his dispatches, General Keir says, I have the satisfaction to report the town of Ras al after a resistance of six days, was taken possession of this morning by the force under my command. On the 18th, after completing my arrangements at Muscat, the Liverpool sailed for the rendezvous at Kishmi. On the 21st, we fell in with the fleet of the Persian Gulf and anchored off the island of Larak on the 24th of November. As it appeared probable that a considerable period would elapse before the junction of which the ships which were detained at Bombay I conceived it would prove highly advantageous to avail myself of all the information that could be procured respecting the strength and resources of the pirates we had to deal with. No time was lost in making the necessary preparations for landing, which was effected the following morning without opposition, at a spot which had been previously selected for that purpose, about two miles to the westward of the town. The troops were formed across the isthmus connecting the peninsula on which the town is situated with the neighboring country, and the whole of the day was occupied in getting the tents on shore to shelter the men from rain, landing engineers, tools, sandbags, and etc., and making arrangements preparatory to commencing our approaches the next day. On the morning of the 4th, our light troops were ordered in advance, supported by the pickets, to dislodge the enemy from a bank within 900 yards of the outer fort which was expected to afford good cover for the men. The whole of the light companies of the force under Captain Backhouse moved forward and drove the Arabs with great gallantry from a date grove and over the bank close under the walls of the fort, followed by the pickets under Major Molesworth, who took post at the sandbanks whilst the European light troops were skirmishing in front. The enemy kept up a sharp fire of musketry and cannon. During these movements, Major Molesworth, a gallant officer, was here killed. The troops kept their position during the day, and in the night effected a lodgment within 300 yards of the southernmost tower, and erected a battery of four guns, together with a mortar battery. The weather having become rather unfavorable for the disembarkation of the stores required for the siege, but this important object being effected on the morning of the 6th, we were enabled to open three 18-pounders on the fort. A couple of howitzers and six-pounders were also placed in the battery on the right, which played on the defenses of the towers and nearly silenced the enemy's fire, who, during the whole of our progress, exhibited a considerable degree of resolution in withstanding and ingenuity in counteracting our attacks. Sallied out at eight o'clock this evening along the whole front of our entrenchments, crept close up to the mortar battery without being perceived, and entered it over the parapet, after spearing the advance entries. 
the party which occupied it were obliged to retire, but being immediately reinforced, charged the assailants, who were driven out of the battery with great loss. The enemy repeated his attacks toward morning, but was vigorously repulsed. During the seventh, every exertion was made to land and bring up the remaining guns and mortars, which was accomplished during the night. They were immediately placed on the battery, together with two twenty-four-pounders, which were landed from the Liverpool. And in the morning the whole of the ordnance opened on the fort and fired with scarcely any intermission till sunset. When the breach of the curtain was reported nearly practicable and the towers almost untenable, immediate arrangements were made for the assault and the troops ordered to move down to the entrenchments by daylight the next morning. The party moved forward about eight o'clock and entered the fort through the breaches without firing a shot, and it soon appeared the enemy had evacuated the place. The town was taken possession of and found almost entirely deserted, only eighteen or twenty men and a few women remaining in their houses. The expedition next proceeded against Rumps, a piratical town, eight miles north of Rosh al but the inhabitants abandoned the town and took refuge in the hill fort of Zayah which is situated at the head of a navigable creek nearly two miles from the sea coast. This place was a resistance of Hussein bin Ali, a sheik of considerable importance among the Josemi tribes, and a person who, from his talents and lawless habits, as well as from the strength and advantageous situation of the fort, was likely to attempt the revival of the piratical system upon the first occasion. It became a desirable object to reduce the power of this chieftain. On the 18th December, the troops embarked at Rosh al at daybreak in the boats of the fleet under command of Major Warren, with the 65th Regiment and the flank companies of the 1st and 2nd Regiment, and at noon arrived within four miles of their destination. This operation was attending with considerable difficulty and risk, owing to the heavy surf that beat on the shore, and which was the occasion of some loss of ammunition and of a few boats being upset and stove in. At half-past three p.m., having refreshed the men, says Major Warren, we commenced our march, and fording the creek or backwater, took up our position at sunset, to the northeastward of the fort, the enemy firing at us as we passed, notwithstanding that our messenger, whom we had previously sent in to summon the sheik, was still in the place, and I lost no time in pushing our riflemen and pickets as far forward as I could, without exposing them too much to the firing of the enemy, whom I found strongly posted under secure cover in the date-tree groves in front of the town. Captain Cock, with the light company of his battalion, was at the same time sent to the westward to cut off the retreat of the enemy on that side. At daybreak the next morning, finding it necessary to drive the enemy still further in, to get a nearer view of his defenses, I moved forward the rifle company of the 65th Regiment, and after a considerable opposition from the enemy, I succeeded in forcing him to retire some distance, but not without disputing every inch of ground, which was well calculated for resistance, being intersected at every few yards by banks and water courses raised for the purpose of irrigation and covered with date trees. The next morning the riflemen, supported by the pickets, were again called into play, and soon established their position within three and four hundred yards of the town, which was the base of the hill was so completely surrounded as to render the escape of any of the garrison now almost impossible. This advantage was gained by a severe loss, two twenty-four-pounders 
and the two twelves, the landing of which had been retarded by the difficulty of communication with the fleet from which we derived all our supplies, having been now brought on shore, we broke ground in the evening, and notwithstanding the rocky soil, had them to play next morning at daylight. Aware, however, that the families of the enemy were still in the town, and humanity dictating that some effort should be made to save the innocent from the fate that awaited the guilty, an opportunity was afforded for that purpose by an offer to the garrison of security to their women and children should they be sent out within the hour. But the infatuated chief, either from an idea that his fort on the hill was not to be reached by our shot, or with the vain hope to gain time by procrastination, returning no answer to our communication, while he detained our messenger, we opened our fire at half-past eight in the morning, and such was the precision of the practice that in two hours we perceived the breach would soon be practicable. I was in the act of ordering the assault when a white flag was displayed, and the enemy, after some little delay in assembling from the different quarters of the place, marched out without their arms, with Hussein bin Ali at their head, to the number of three hundred and ninety-eight, and at half-past one p.m. the British flags were hoisted on the hill fort and at the sheik's house. The women and children, to the number of four hundred, were at the same time collected together in a place of security, and sent on board the fleet, together with the men. The service has been short but arduous. The enemy defended themselves with great obstinacy and ability worthy of a better cause. From two prisoners retaken from the Josemes, they learnt that the plunder is made a general stock, and distributed by the chief, but in what proportions the deponents cannot say. Water is generally very scarce. There is a quantity of fish caught on the bank, upon which, and dates, they live. There were a few horses, camels, cows, sheep, and goats, the greatest part of which they took with them. They were in general lean, as the sandy plain produces little or no vegetation, except a few dates and coconut trees. The pirates who abandoned Ras al-Khaima encamped about three miles in the interior, ready to retreat into the desert at a moment's warning. The Sheik of Rumps is an old man, but looks intelligent, and is said to be the man who advises, upon all occasions, the movements of the different tribes of pirates on the coast. And when he was told that it was the wish of the company to put a stop to their piracy, and to make an honest people of them by encouraging them to trade, seemed to regret much that those intentions were not made known, as they would have been most readily embraced. Rumps is the key to Ras al-Khaimah, and by its strength is defended from a strong banditti infesting the mountains, as also the Bedouin Arabs, who are their enemies. A British garrison of 1,200 men is stationed at Ras al-Khaimah and a guard ship. The outer places sent in tokens of submission, as driven out of their fortresses on the margin of the sea, they had to contend with the interior hostile tribes. End of chapter 3